this morning. I'm going to preach to you a very basic subject today. You've heard it many times. You were converted under the preaching of it. That being a fact, sometimes I almost feel apologetic, but really, I owe no apology for it. It was good studying it. I enjoyed it. And if it brought joy to my heart, and I know it as well as you do, if not better, then I trust it will bring joy to yours. I want to talk about the Bible doctrine of election. If a person says the Bible doesn't teach election, the person is denying the Word of God. What I want to do today as I present this subject is I want to present it from a positive standpoint, just pointing out that the Bible teaches it and what the Bible teaches about it. I'm not going to particularly deal with all of the objections that might be made to it or all of the verses that might be appealed to to try to counter the doctrine. I just want to show what the Bible says about it. And you can rest assured of one thing, that anything in the Bible that might appear to contradict it does not actually do so. For the one thing the Bible teaches is that there are no contradictions within itself. For as we have pointed out to you, the word truth in the Bible is in the singular. It is never in the plural. It is not a matter of several truths. There is only one truth, and every part fits into the whole. It all agrees and comes together into one harmonious blend. There is no such thing as one verse contradicting another. They all harmonize if we once understand how to understand the Bible and to piece it all together. When we talk about election... The definition of that term means the action of electing. That's the verb elect. Now to elect means to pick out, to choose, usually for a particular purpose or function. And then we want to define the term choose. For when we talk about elect, we're talking about choosing. Therefore, when we go through our concordance to glean out what the Bible says about this doctrine, we want to look up the word elect, and we also want to look up the word choose, because they're both talking about the same thing. The one term is defined by the other. The word choose means to take by preference out of all that are available, to select, to take as that which one prefers, or in accordance with one's free will and preference. So when we talk about choosing, we're talking about the activity of the free will of the one who chooses. But we'll be dealing later with who does the choosing. And he does it of his own free will. You see, salvation is by free will, but it just depends on whose free will you're talking about. And we'll deal with that later. But now let us also show from our scriptures that elect and choose are talking about the same thing. The one term is synonymous with the other. We come to Mark chapter 13 and verse 20. Mark 13, 20. And we read that for the elect's sake, notice how they're explained or described, whom he hath chosen. See, the elect are the ones God... Hath, and notice, the elect are those whom he hath chosen. You notice he didn't say, for the elect's sake, who have chosen God. But it's for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen. In that verse, it's God that did the choosing of the people, not the people choosing God. I want you to notice that. That's very, very plain for anybody that can understand the English language. We shall also further show you that to be elect is to be chosen by comparing a prophecy with a quotation of it in the New Testament. You need not turn to this. It's just a minor point, but it's a reinforcement of our thought. In Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, mine elect, now that verse is quoted in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Notice that the one designated in Isaiah is mine elect, is designated as whom I have chosen in Matthew 12. Therefore, when we talk about election, we're talking about choosing. And from the text we've already given, we're talking about God choosing. We're dealing with a choice that God made. It was God's choice. Now, when I'm talking about election today, I'm talking about the election or choice of persons. 
I'm not talking about choosing a way or choosing a thing or choosing a plan. I'm talking about the selection or choice of persons. I will prove to you now that election deals with persons. Well, in fact, I've already done it. In Mark, Mark, 5, Mark 13, 20, he said, The elect say whom, that's a personal pronoun, we'll get to that in future grammar lessons, whom he hath chosen. Dealing there with the choice of persons. Persons. Now we'll show that further. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he, now notice who's doing the choosing again, it's God. According as he hath chosen us. That's a personal pronoun, objective case. Receiving the action of the verb hath chosen. God, he, that's the nominative case, the subject. He's doing the choosing. We're the object of the choice. It's not that we choose God. It is that God chooses us. And we're talking here about the choice of persons. According as he hath chosen us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The fact that election deals with the choice of persons is further confirmed in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We are bound to give thanks always to God, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because he hath chosen you. That's the second person plural pronoun referring to persons, a personal pronoun. He hath chosen you unto salvation. This is further brought out, the fact that election deals with persons. In Second, First uh, Peter chapter one, one through two, First Peter one, one through two, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, those are persons scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, notice that election there is used to describe persons. The fact that election deals with persons is very plainly stated in Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest. Now, you know, some people, when they read the Bible doctrine of election, they think that means that God has chosen a plan whereby to save people. That God could have saved us any number of ways, and he chose a particular plan. That election is a choice of a plan. But it does not say in Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the plan. It said, blessed is the man. It is the election of personalities, of individuals. The fact, again, of election of persons will be last confirmed by the text we cite in Romans 16 and verse 13. Romans 16, 13. Salute Rufus. That's a person. Salute Rufus. Chosen in the Lord. And so election has to do with the choice of persons. At least the election I'm talking about today. The choice of persons. Now the next thing we want to look at, having identified that election is talking about choosing... And having shown from these texts that we're talking about a choice that God made, and having shown that it's dealing with the choice of persons, we now want to look at what men are chosen to. Remember that in our definition of election, it meant to pick out usually for a particular purpose or function. What we want to deal with now is the purpose for which individuals are chosen, the purpose for which they are elected. We will now turn, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Now, some people think that election has nothing to do with making you a child of God. In fact, I've heard the doctrine explained that election is God choosing people who have already made a decision for Christ and are therefore already the children of God and choosing to make those people like Christ. But I'll show you that election does have to do with the very fact that you're a child of God. If you're elect, you're a child. If you're not elect, you're not a child. We shall show that now from Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Here we're looking at the purpose, the end to which we are elected. According as he hath chosen us, that's God again doing the choosing, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that 
Now that word that means the end or purpose in view. Here's the aim for God choosing us. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. Who's the us? The ones he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Those having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now observe carefully that those chosen are also predestinated. That means their destiny is fixed in advance. That's what the word means, to destine beforehand or in advance. And he's predestinated us unto the adoption of children. When you adopt something, you take it into relationship with yourself. And what God has done is he has selected certain persons and he has before destined them to have a relationship with himself as children. According as he hath chosen us, having predestinated us, those whom he has chosen, to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. That election has to do with who is a child of God and who is not. We find from Romans 9, Romans 9, beginning at verse 6, Romans 9, 6 through 13. Romans 9, 6 through 13. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now he explains what he's talking about. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Just because a man is of the natural lineage of Abraham, that does not in itself make him a child of God. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Observe that he's telling you that the thing he's talking about in the passage is what makes a person a child of God. You see, he's explaining his points. That is, they which are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. They are the ones that are the children of God, the children of the promise. And he's going to go on and explain who the children of the promise are. He's going to continue right on into his subject, and he introduces it with the connective four. For this is the word of promise. And this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And, in connection with that, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. All right, now here Abraham has two natural or physical descendants, Jacob and Esau. Now, if being merely of the physical progeny of Abraham makes you a child of God, then Esau is one just as much as Jacob. But we know that's not the case. God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. He said, the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob was the one to whom the promises were conveyed. Jacob was the child of promise. Why? Jacob was the elect of God. And it's the child of promise, the elect of God, that is the child of God. Therefore, election has to do with whether a person is a child of God or not. If you are not elected, then you are not predestinated to have the relationship of a child. If you are elected, then you are predestinated to have the relationship of a child. It has to do with making you a child of God. And it also has to do with making you holy and without blame. He elected you that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He did not elect you because you were holy. He elected you that you should be. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But let's look further at what God has elected us to. The purpose or end of the election. And that will be found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers which are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And don't let that scare you. We'll get back to that in a moment. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Now let me stop right there for a moment. Notice that this election is through or by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. That text is telling you, according to its grammatical structure, that the Holy Spirit of God was involved in your election. God the Father was involved in it. The Holy Spirit was involved in it. You know, it's a very interesting thing to study how much the Holy Spirit is involved in. He was involved in the creation of this world. Remember in Genesis 1-2, as we have the introduction of the creation, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We are told that the Spirit of God garnished the heavens in Job chapter 26 and verse 13. The Spirit of God is also attributed with our being created or made ourselves as persons. For we're told in Job 33 and verse... Um, have a, uh, the verse 4, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. The Holy Spirit was involved in the conception of Jesus Christ when he assumed human nature. Matthew 1.18, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit empowered the Son of God in his personal ministry. For we're told in Matthew 12 and verse 28 that he cast out devils by the Spirit of God. We're told in Acts chapter 10... Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and with power. We are told concerning his death in Hebrews 9, 14 that he offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 he was put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit. So notice that the ministry of Christ from its conception to its resurrection was sanctified and empowered and directed by the spirit of God. And that ministry of Christ from conception to resurrection, is the very thing by which you are saved. Now notice the application of the benefit of that salvation in the new birth is also by the Holy Spirit. For John 3, 5 says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then the Holy Spirit will also be there on hand to effect the consummation of your salvation and the resurrection of your body. Romans 8, 9 through 11. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit of life is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. The Holy Spirit made you the first time. The Holy Spirit remade you the second time. He is the author of your natural creation. He is the author of your spiritual creation. He was involved in the election. He was involved in the ministry of Christ. He regenerates you. He indwells you. And he at last quickens your body in the end. No wonder then, we are told, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, we're bound to give thanks to God, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit. Notice the salvation plan is effected by the Spirit of God. He was there in the election. He will be there in the consummation from start to finish. It's a work of the Spirit. It's through the sanctification of the Spirit that individuals are saved and they're elected to be saved, chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But let's get back now to 1 Peter 1. We read that they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto 
Now he's telling you what they're elected to. They're elected to this, to obedience. And if you keep reading, you'll find that's not your obedience under consideration. Under obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the obedience of Christ. It's talking about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Notice that you're elected to that. Let's take the obedience of Jesus Christ first. We read in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. He was a man that when he claimed to be God, he wasn't stealing anything that wasn't his right to do. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But yet he who is God made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant. And the Lord told you to have that same kind of mind in yourself. Our chief end is not to make ourselves of reputation, but to serve our God. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Mind you that the obedience of Jesus Christ ties right in with his death on the cross. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And we have been elected unto that obedience. My friends, if you receive the benefits of the crucifixion death of Christ, then 1 Peter 1, 2 is telling you as loud as it can scream it, that the reason you receive those benefits is not because you chose them, but because God chose you unto them. Is that not plain? Shall I repeat that? If you receive the benefits of the obedience of Jesus Christ unto the death of the cross, it is not because you chose the cross, but it was because God chose you unto the cross. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let's listen to our Lord's obedience again. He said in John 6, 38 and 39, I came not to do my own will. The meat of the Savior was to do the Father's will and to finish His work. That's what He survived on, friends, was doing the will of God and finishing the work of the Father. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is my Father's will, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. There's the obedience of Jesus Christ. His saving everyone that God the Father gave Him. And you're elected to that obedience. My friends, if you're not lost, if you're not lost, it's because God elected you unto the obedience of Jesus Christ, which obedience was to see to it that you wouldn't be lost. And then Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19. You ought to be able to quote this one. By the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. But by the obedience of one, and that one is Jesus Christ, many shall be made righteous. You're not made righteous by your obedience. You're made righteous by His. And my friends, if that obedience was done for you, it was not because you chose it, but it was because God chose you to it. Elect unto the obedience of Christ and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Now what's tied in with the sprinkling of the blood? Let's turn in our Bibles now to Hebrews 9 and look at what the Bible says about the sprinkling of blood and what it accomplishes. In Roman, pardon me, in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, 
Now, the point I'm gaining out of that text is that sprinkling of blood accomplishes purification. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Then jump over in the same chapter to verse 19 through 22. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took of the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled, there's the sprinkling of blood, sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And almost all things by the law are purged with blood. Now notice he's been talking about the sprinkling of blood. Now he's telling you what that was for. Almost all things by the law are purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Notice that sprinkling accomplishes purification. It accomplishes purging. That's the way they purge things with blood. And the word purge means to cleanse. To rid of whatever is impure or extraneous, to clear or free, to, to clear or free of or from. Purging refers to cleansing. When we talk about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, therefore, we are talking about that blood that cleanseth from all sin. When he had by himself purged our sins, and that was accomplished by the sprinkling of his blood. For they sprinkled the blood to purge, to cleanse away, or to cleanse from the sin and impurity. We also observe another thing that comes out of the sprinkling of blood. Hold your seats now. This gets better as we go further. We come to Exodus 29. Exodus 29 and verse 21. Exodus 29, 21. And thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron. Here's the sprinkling of blood. Sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hallowed. Notice they became hallowed when the blood was sprinkled. And what does the word hallow mean? It means to make holy, to sanctify, to purify. When we talk about the sprinkling of blood, we're talking about that which purges, purifies, cleanses, and makes holy the individual before God. Now look at it. Watch it now. Ephesians 1.4 God chose you that with this end in view. You should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Well, what is it that makes you holy and without blame? It's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what hallows, makes holy, and purges. It's, the, it's by the obedience of Christ that we are made righteous. You see, the thing that makes us righteous, the thing that makes us holy, the thing that makes us unblameable, is not our spotless deportment, but His. The sprinkling of His blood. So God has elected us to make us holy, and He's elected us to the very thing that gets the job done. And that's the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How's that for particular redemption? That Jesus died for the elect to make them what God elected them to be. And that is holy and without blame before Him. This is exactly what we read about. And this is a good one. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. This is what we read about the death of Christ in Titus 2, 14. 2, 14. Speaking of our Savior Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. Get it now. Hold it. Hold it. That He might redeem us from all iniquity. And purify their sprinkling of blood. 
This blood was sprinkled to purify, to cleanse, to purge. And to purify, now notice he's telling you why he died. He's telling you the purpose for the giving of his life. Here's the purpose. Here's what he intended to accomplish. And to purify unto himself a peculiar people. And you know what that word peculiar means? It means, it means that is one's own private property. The Lord Jesus Christ died for private property. He died, he didn't just die for just anybody and anything. He died for a peculiar people, for private property, for his own private property. And isn't that what he was talking about in John 6, 38 and 39? This is the will of him that sent me, that of all that he hath given me, you know, those that belong to me, my private property, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. He purifies a peculiar people. He purifies a people that are his private property. In other words, he died for his own, those God the Father gave to him. That's how you become the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not become Christ by giving yourself to Jesus. You become Christ because God gave you to Jesus Christ. That of all which the Father hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. And isn't that exactly what Matthew one twenty one says? For he shall save his people, there's the peculiar people, his private property, his own personal possession, that he should save his people from their sins. <clears throat> elect to the sprinkling of blood. Those who receive the sprinkling of blood are the elect, chosen of God, given to Christ, his own personal property that he redeemed by his death. Look at lastly Colossians chapter 1. And we see the means whereby we are made what God elected us to be. You see, notice something. God elected you to be holy and God's the one that makes you holy through the obedience and blood sprinkling of Jesus Christ. We have yet to find a text that tells us that we are made holy and without blame by something we do. We're rather being told that it's because of what somebody did for us. And if we receive the benefits of what that somebody did, it's not because we chose Him, but because we were chosen by God for that and to that. Colossians 1, 21-23 And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Hath reconciled. What is that verb tense? Hath reconciled. No. Hath reconciled. Present perfect. It's got an auxiliary. Hath, see. Reconciled is the past. Hath reconciled is the present perfect. The present perfect tense is past completed action. All right, now when he talks about these people being reconciled, he's talking about a past completed action. Fate accomplished. You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. And notice where it was done. In the body of his flesh through death. It was done in the body of his flesh through death. It wasn't done in the body of your flesh when you ran down the aisle and shook the preacher's hand. It wasn't done in the body of your flesh when you got baptized. It wasn't done in the body of your flesh when you knelt down at the altar and prayed. It was done in the body of the flesh of Christ when he died. It's what it says. And it didn't say he would try to reconcile or make reconciliation a possibility. It said he hath reconciled you to God in the body of his flesh through death. With this end in view, to present you holy and unblameable. Exactly what God elected you to be to start with. Holy and without blame. Now how is God going to bring you to that? Through the body of his flesh. 
through death. And we should be to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And don't let that next verse scare you. Arminians think they've got something with that verse and they haven't got a thing. Because it said, Hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled. And they will say, Now see there, if you want to be presented to God holy and unblameable, you've got to hold out to the end and continue in the faith and be faithful and don't backslide. That's standard Methodist doctrine. When the Methodists used to preach doctrine. They don't even preach that now. I was a member of a Methodist church for a year. I went every Sunday and Sunday night, three services a day, and I never heard the pastor preach on the fact that they believed you could lose their salvation. They did believe that. But they didn't even preach their false doctrine. They were pitiful. Excuse me. But now notice the verb tenses. It's very simple. Watch it now. Just, Just look. Hath he reconciled if ye continue. What's the verb tense of continue there? Continue. If ye is present. Now notice the verb tense. Hath he reconciled? That's present perfect. If ye continue. Present. See, the past completed action is the reconciliation. The continuing is the present. He hath reconciled you if you're continuing in the faith. That text is not presenting a condition for you to fulfill to get reconciled. It's just telling you if you're continuing in the faith, he has reconciled you. In other words, the text is not, get it now, procurative, but descriptive. It's not laying out a condition you've got to fulfill to get the reconciliation. It's just setting forth an evidence that you have the reconciliation. You want to know whether you're reconciled or not? Are you continuing in the faith, grounded and settled? If you are, then he has reconciled you. Just describing the characters he has reconciled. Not presenting a condition they must fulfill to get reconciled. So we see that God has elected us to make us holy and without blame. And he has elected us to the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us holy and without blame before him. Now let's look at the basis of the election. What moved God to choose one and not another? Now notice in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. We are told that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now the expression according to means in a manner agreeing with, consistent with, or answering to, or agreeable to. We're being told that God has elected his people in a manner that agrees with his foreknowledge, that's consistent with his foreknowledge. Now, notice that in that text, 1 Peter 1, 2, it doesn't mention what it is that's foreknown. It doesn't, it says foreknowledge, but it doesn't tell you foreknowledge of what, it just says foreknowledge. Now this is a favorite text of Arminians who don't like the doctrine of election. And they will say, well, yes, I believe in election, but I believe it according to 1 Peter 1, 2, that it's elect according to foreknowledge, and that is that God foreknew who would decide for Christ or who would accept Christ or who would this or that or whatever they say you've got to do. And foreseeing what you would do, he based his election on his foreknowledge of your obedience or good behavior or faith or decision or whatever it is. That's a frequent explanation made of that text. Problem is, this text does not prove that, does it? Remember we talked about a proof text? Does that text say that God elected us according as he foreknew we would accept Christ? Does it say that? It just says elect according to foreknowledge and leaves it right there and doesn't even explain what the foreknowledge is of. Okay? Now from other passages, we can absolutely, irrevocably prove, irrefutably prove, that God does not elect people based on foreseen obedience or foreseen response or foreseen free will exercise on their part or merit or whatever you want to call it. We can prove that. Number one, 
Election deals with man as fallen. When God elected us, in his mind he saw us as fallen and ruined in Adam. And he elected us to make us other than what we were by virtue of our sin. Notice Ephesians 1, 4 said he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, God, if God chose us because of something good we did, then the text would have said that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world because we were holy and without blame. But it didn't say that. It didn't say he chose us because we were holy. It said he chose us that we should be holy. That presupposes that when he chose us, we weren't. And we needed to be made that way. 1 Peter 1, 2 said he elected us to the sprinkling of blood. We obviously needed some purging and cleansing, didn't we, at the time he chose us. So it's obvious that the election was not based on his foreseeing something good in us. The whole problem was he foresaw no good and he elected to make us good. But the fact that the election is not based on a foreseen merit in the sinner elected is plainly established from Romans 9, to which we direct your attention now. Romans 9 Beginning at verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth, and that's God. Notice according to this text that your doing good hasn't got anything to do with your being elect. Your doing evil doesn't keep you from being elect, and your doing good doesn't make you elect. It doesn't keep you from being elect if you do bad. And it doesn't make you elect if you do good. Now somebody might say, well, I don't, I don't believe that election is based on your doing good. I believe election is based on your faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is not something you do. It isn't. I can prove that it is something you do. Listen. The Philippian jailer asked Christ, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered, believe. Notice Paul didn't say, well, there's nothing you can do. Just believe. No, he asked, what must I do? And he told him what to do. He said, believe. I can prove to you faith is something you do. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. This is the proof text now. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the way to your matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These, that is judgment, mercy, and faith, ought ye to have done. Faith is something you do. Now, if it, when, you, when you do faith, are you doing good or are you doing evil? I'd venture to say you're doing good, aren't you? But according to this passage, election is not based on your doing good. And that includes faith. It's not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Watch it now, this is good. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, he ties up his thoughts about election. It, the election, is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Language could not be more plain. That the election is not based on your running, your works, or your will, but solely upon God and his will. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Notice it says, not of him that willeth. The word will, watch this now, get it now. Oh, this is good. Election is not of him that willeth. Now get it. The, to exercise will means to, ex, the verb will means to exercise the will. 
to perform the mental act of volition. Now, the word volition means an act of willing or resolving, a, a decision or choice made after due consideration or deliberation. The election is not according to your act of volition. That is, your decision that you make after due consideration. The evangelist stands in the meeting, Oh, sinner, consider. If you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? Give due consideration to that fact, sinner. You might not wake to see the light of another son. And while the choir sings another verse, and as you stand there and deliberate, do not wait. Come forward now. The sinner deliberates. Well, my good friend was killed in a car wreck last week. I don't know whether he was saved or not. And that could happen to me. And he duly deliberates. And he considers. Down the aisle he goes. And he says, I make my decision tonight for Christ. And he signs the decision card so they can call him up and badger him to get in the church and get all they can out of him. What does the Bible say? The election is not of that. That hasn't got a thing to do with it. Romans 11, 4 through 6. Romans 11, 4 through 6. Oh, this is a good passage for people that believe they were saved in Old Testament times different than we are in New Testament times. Listen to this. What saith the answer of God unto him, talking about Elijah? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, this is in the days of Elijah under the Old Testament law. But I'm going to show you people were God's people under that system just like they are today. No different. I have, re I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, that means in like manner, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Observe that people are elect of grace now the same way they were in the Old Testament. There's no difference. Those people under the Old Testament were elect according to grace. And even so now, in the same manner now, they are elect according to grace. There's no difference in either system as far as how an individual becomes a child of God. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. The election is not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. It can't be both. It's either of grace or works. And he says here the election is of grace. And if it's of grace, it is no more of works. Let me bring in another point here that's interesting. You know, a lot of people believe that God elects you based on uh, the fact that he foresaw that you would make a decision in response to the preaching of the gospel. We'll analyze that a moment. When a man is preaching the gospel, did you know he's doing a work? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says so. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. When you preach the gospel, you're engaging in a work. Now, if you've got to preach the gospel to the sinner and he's got to accept it and then God elects you on the basis of that particular transaction, then it is of works. Because somebody's got to do some work for it to get done. And if it's of works, it's no more of grace. You see, my friends, that's why a fundamentalist Arminian isn't a different, a whit different from a Catholic. They both believe you're saved by works. Just as straight as they can possibly believe it. That's why if I didn't believe what I believed, I would be a Catholic. Because it's prettier. <laughs> and I like pipe organs and Gregarian chanting. 
I mean, if you're not going to have God's doctrine, then it, all that stuff out there, it's a dime a dozen. Take your pick. It won't make any difference with God which one you select. But I'll further show that election could not possibly be based on foreseen merit or foreseen response in the power of a sinner. Because the sinner, no sinner makes any kind of a response that's righteous. You can rest assured, my friend, that when a man starts doing good and starts responding to God as he ought to, it's not a matter of him doing that in order to get eternal life. If he does that, he's already got it. The Bible says, He that doeth righteousness is born of God. Look at Romans chapter 3. Here's a good text for total depravity. You'll love this. Romans 3, 9 to 12. Now, if election was based on foreseen merit, this text will show nobody would ever have been elected. What then are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. This is the way God foreknew men to be in their sin. And if election is based on his foreknowledge of their doing something good, then nobody would have ever been elect because there's none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's plain, isn't it? I don't even have to comment, do I? Well, aren't there some people in the world that do good? Well, I've already told you about the condition of those individuals. He that doeth righteousness is born of God. And that doing righteousness is too late to move God to elect him. Because if he's doing righteous, he's already elected. And it was God's election that made him that way. He was elected that he should be holy. Well, if he's holy, he's already elected. Because he was elected that he should be holy. And without blame before God in love. But get this one. One of the passages Paul is quoting from in this Romans 3 is Psalm 53. Get this now. This is total depravity by definition. Psalm 53. You know, sometimes when you talk about total depravity, somebody might say, well, that term doesn't occur in the Bible. Well, we'll give you one that you can use then. The concept is there. But if they want to argue about words, well, then we'll give them some Bible words and that will settle the argument. Psalm 53, 3. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. If they don't like total depravity, okay, say we'll substitute it for altogether filthy. And the word altogether means, and this is an adverb describing the action of the verb become, altogether become filthy. It means everything being included in, in all respects, in every particular, entirely, wholly, totally, quite, totally filthy. In every respect. Well, if we're totally filthy in every respect, how could the election have been based on some foreseen merit when we were all together and totally filthy? God certainly didn't elect us because He delighted in our filthiness. God knew... No! Well, then what does it mean? Notice how foreknowledge is spoken of in connection with God's people in a few passages. Remember that one of the rules for understanding the Bible is comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Let's look at how that word foreknowledge is used in other places in relation to God's people. For example, turn to Romans 8, 29. 
for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Did you notice that that's a personal pronoun, whom, objective case, whom he did foreknow? It's not for because of what he foreknew. It was whom. It's not what, it's whom. Here is foreknowledge of persons. It's not talking about what they do, it's talking about the persons themselves. Whom he foreknew them. For whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Look. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Here's foreknowledge again, but it's of his people. It's not talking about what they do, not talking about their faith or their response. It's talking about his people, foreknowledge of the people. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Here are two cases where God's foreknowledge is spoken of, and it's the knowledge of his people. We read in the book of Second uh, Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 19, concerning God, the foundation of God standeth sure, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God knows his people. God foreknows his people. And that knowledge of his people is a special knowledge that not everyone has. Look at Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. God speaking to the covenant chosen people, the people of Israel, said, You only have I known of all families of the earth. Now God knows about everybody. I mean, Jesus knew, what, knew all men and he knew what was in man. God knows everything. But in this particular case, when it talks about God knowing, it's talking about... Well, then what does it mean? Notice how foreknowledge is spoken of in connection with God's people in a few passages. Remember that one of the rules for understanding the Bible is comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Let's look at how that word foreknowledge is used in other places in relation to God's people. For example, turn to Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Did you notice that that's a personal pronoun? Whom, objective case, whom he did foreknow, it's not for because of what he foreknew. It was whom. It's not what. It's whom. Here is foreknowledge of persons. It's not talking about what they do. It's talking about the persons themselves. Whom he foreknew them. For whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Look at Romans 11, 2. God hath not cast away his people, which, which is a relative pronoun referring back to God's people. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Here's foreknowledge again, but it's of his people. It's not talking about what they do, not talking about their faith or their response, it's talking about his people, foreknowledge of the people. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Here are two cases where God's foreknowledge is spoken of, and it's the knowledge of his people. We read in the book of Second uh, Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 19, concerning God, the foundation of God standeth sure, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God knows his people. God foreknows his people. And that knowledge of his people is a special knowledge that not everyone has. Look at Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. God speaking to the covenant chosen people, the people of Israel, said, You only have I known of all families of the earth. Now, God knows about everybody. I mean, Jesus knew what knew all men, and he knew what was in man. God knows everything. 
But in this particular case, when it talks about God knowing, it's talking about sustaining a very special relationship, the like of which he sustains with no other. You only have I known of all families of the earth. Isn't it interesting how sometimes when the Bible talks about a man and a wife and their very special relationship of marriage, it speaks of it as a knowledge. Joseph knew his wife. Adam knew his wife. God says, you only have I known. God has a special knowledge. He sustains a very special relationship with his people, the like of which he sustains with no other. Listen to what he'll say to the wicked in the day of judgment. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23, he will say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Now contrast. As for the wicked, I never knew you. As for the elect, he foreknew. You see, knowledge here refers to a special relationship God sustains to certain people that he doesn't sustain to others. You only have I known. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect agreeable to God's foreknowledge. And doesn't election agree with that fact? Doesn't election agree with the fact that God sustains a very special relationship with a special people? He foreknows his own. Doesn't election agree with that? Doesn't that just line right up with that? That's what it's all about. That God selected certain people and entered into special covenant relationship with them. He knows them. The like of which he knows no other. Now, of course, when we talk about election, then the question that always arises in a person's mind is, all right, all of this sounds fine, but what if I'm not elect? How do I know I'm elect? And that will bring us now toward the close of our discourse with the last point we wish to make. First Thessalonians chapter 1, 4 and 5. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now notice the election is of God. It's not of you. It's of Him. We've already proven that. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Well, how do you know it? Here's the answer. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. How did Paul know these people were elect? He knew it because they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel, then that evidence is that you are one of God's elect. By this you know the election of God. And who, for whom is the gospel? Do you remember last Sunday as I was reading in Romans chapter 3 about the depravity of man? I've already referred to that a little bit. No, no none that doeth good. No, not one. None righteous. No fear of God before their eyes, the way of peace they have not known, destruction and misery in their ways. And I gave a description of fallen man. And don't you remember that I asked you in that discourse, as you read that description, you read there a description of yourself under sin. And remember I asked you, do you loathe and abhor that description? Do you detest and loathe yourself as you are under sin? If you do, you know what the Bible teaches about you? You fear God. Because Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 says, The fear of God is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the forward mouth and the evil way do I hate. If you hate your sins and you grieve over your sins, you fear God. And if you fear God, the gospel is to you. Listen. Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, 
And whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Then look at Isaiah chapter 61 and find out if the gospel is for you or not. And if the gospel is for you, if it's to you, you have every right to believe it. So that when in the gospel the announcement is made that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, if that message is to you, that is saying he came to save you. And you may freely and rightfully believe it so. In Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. And that, word, that expression is rendered gospel in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel or good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know, David, when he was depending to God for his awful sin with Bathsheba, he said this about himself in his repentance. In verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Sinner, you have nothing good you can give to God. But if you have a broken heart, God will take it. The gospel is to you. He was sent to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Do you mourn over your sins? To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If you have a broken heart over sin and you mourn over sin and you feel you have no goodness and you loathe yourself as a sinner, to you is the word of this salvation sent. And I say to you, according to Mark chapter 1, in the appeal of the gospel, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, that He died, that He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scriptures and is seated at the right hand of God, appointed of God to be the judge, the quick and the dead, the Lord of all and your Lord. And if you have a broken heart and you fear God, your Savior. Those are the very ones that the word of his salvation are sent to. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are elect of God and you have eternal life. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God sent Jesus Christ to give you eternal life and if you believe, you have eternal life. He that believeth on him hath everlasting life. Read the last verse of John 3. They read John 3.16 and they don't read John 3.36. It says that he that believeth hath everlasting life. You want to know whether you're elect or not? You want to know whether you have eternal life or not? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have eternal life and you are elect. Because you see, it's only the elect that really believe that. I'll give you two verses that prove it. Acts 13 and verse 38. Here he has sent, this word of salvation has gone out to them that fear God. 
And in Acts 13, 48, it said, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. And get this one. Titus 1, 1. Notice who believed. Those who were ordained to eternal life. The word ordained means to appoint. Those appointed to eternal life. Chosen, elected of God to eternal life. Titus 1, 1. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. That's who believes. That's the one that believes. God's elect. The faith of God's elect. You want to know whether you want a God's elect or not? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Exercise faith. Because that faith is the faith of God's elect. By this, you know your election of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. Follow the Lord. And by this you will know that you are elect. Stand for dismission. Lord God, we thank you for the doctrine of election. It's so precious to our souls. We just thank you for the Word of God that speaks it so plainly and for the fact that we can build the hope of our salvation not on our works but upon the purpose of God in election. That's, Lord, if it depended on us, how shaky the ground would be. We're so feeble, so fickle that if our eternal destiny depended on our volition, on our choice, on our decision, by Lord, half the time we don't even know what to decide. We don't even know how to pray as we ought, much less decide for eternity. We're thankful that that decision depends not on us, but on the free will of God. That you freely, of your own will, because it seemed good in your sight, chose us to eternal life. And once you make up your mind, Lord, to do something, well, you have said the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. There's no changing. And get into something else here. Moving on in our study of evangelism. Verses five, 4 through 6. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now, apart from just dealing with the subject of effective evangelism, there's some beautiful things to be cited there to your attention. The first thing, a beautiful text, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. There is an election. The text says it. For anybody to say that there's no such thing as election is to deny what the text plainly says. Talking about a proof text, there's a proof text. It says election of God. Well, is that something we can know about? It certainly is. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, some people are willing to concede that, well, yeah, I know the Bible says something about election, but that's not meant for us to understand. Paul said, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. It is a subject in the book. It is a subject meant to be known, and Paul identifies it as something he knew about. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The text also tells us very plainly who the election is of. It is not of the sinner, but it is of God. Now, who are the elect? It's obvious from this there is an elect. These brethren, your election of God. Who are the elect? Very plainly identified in Mark chapter 13 and verse 20. Uh, Except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, 
whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened of the days. Who are the elect? They are the ones he, God, has chosen. And notice, it's not the elect choosing God, it's God choosing them. No wonder then Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. It's God doing the choosing and not the sinner. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ say in John chapter 15 of his apostles, Who were our examples and patterns, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Very plain language, isn't it? God did the choosing. Ephesians 1.4, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. That tells you when the election took place. He didn't choose you after you chose Him. He chose you before you even around to make a choice. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. It did not say He chose you because you were holy and without blame, as though your holiness and unblameableness were the reason for His choosing you. But He rather chose you that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You see, you weren't that in yourself. But He chose you to make you that way. So your holiness and unblameableness is not what made God elect you. It's the result of the election. It is that unto which you were elected. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated, notice how it's tied in, he chose you having done this too. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now some people will try to argue, yes, I know the Bible teaches election, but it's election to service. It's not election to salvation. In other words, eternal salvation is dependent on your decision. You decide for Christ and God accepts you on the basis of your decision. And then after you've made the decision and now that you're eternally saved, God predestinates you to be like Jesus. And God chooses you to serve Him. Now that's an explanation some people make. But election is not to salvation, it is to service. But let us settle that particular argument once and for all. The election is to salvation, not just to service. Second. Thessalonians 2.13 will answer the question for us so plain in language that a fifth grader could understand. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. So election is to salvation, the verse says it. And, of course, it's made plain right there in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It said, He chose you, having predestinated you, to what? To the adoption of children. That is your standing and placing before God as a child. Election decides whether you are a child of God or not, you see. It has everything to do with making you a child of God, and that is necessary to your eternal salvation. Having predestinated us to the adoption of children. So, notice the text plainly says. You see, that's a proof text. You know, you talk about a proof text and reference text. That's a proof text. Ephesians 1, 4. There is a, cho- a, cho- there is a choice made of people. The text says, He hath chosen us. Us, that's people, see. He's not talking about animals, talking about folks. He's writing to the Ephesians, speaking of himself and them. He, that's who did it, hath chosen, that's the activity, us, that's the people. That's the proof text. You'd have to be, you'd have to be willfully blind to say God didn't choose people. The text says he did. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
Well, I had a Sunday school teacher one time that had a nice little explanation to get around the implications of the doctrine of election. I raised the question to her one time. At that time, she didn't believe in it. And she said, yes, but God has chosen everybody. Yes, isn't that cute? God has chosen everybody to be saved. Will you have a problem with that? Let's hit another proof text. Romans chapter 9. She was a sweet lady. I really like her. She's a charismatic now. I really hate that. But at any rate, she was a nice lady. I don't mean to imply that she wasn't a nice lady, but she's like a lot of nice ladies. She was nice and wrong. Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, talking about Rebekah's children, that's Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So Rebekah's children were given for the very purpose of establishing the doctrine of election. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, See, see, your election's of God. It's not of you. It's not of works. You don't work to get elected. Not of works. But of Him, see, it's of God, that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. It is very clear from this text that it is given to establish the purpose of election that not everybody's chosen. One got picked, one didn't. And God did that just to show you what election is all about. Some get chosen, some don't. Why does one get chosen and another doesn't? It isn't because of what that one did, nor is it because of what he didn't do. But it was because God, in his own sovereignty and good pleasure, made the choice he wanted to make for reasons worthy of himself. The text says it, you see. A person has to be willfully blind to not see what that text is a saying. Uh, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness? God according to election. God that's what he said, isn't it? And that's what he's talking about. So, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I love that. It's tied up on both ends with an I will from God and no will from you. I will have mercy on whom ever will let me have mercy. Now that's where it's preached, isn't it? But that's not what the text said. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So what moves the will of God to have mercy on a sinner is the will of God to have mercy on a sinner. It's tied up with his will on both ends of the line. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, let's draw a conclusion from these observations. It, taking us back now to the fact that he's dealing with the purpose of God according to election, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Your willing, your running, has nothing to do with establishing the election. It is all God that showeth mercy, and he doesn't show it to everybody, because he says right on in verse 18, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden it. And he gives you an example of an individual upon whom he bestowed no mercy. So, Paul says, knowing, brethren beloved, see, now, there's no problem knowing that, is there? No wonder Paul could say, we know about an election, because the Bible teaches it. He had written about it. They ought to know about it. He taught it. And knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, just one more verse to show the election is of God and not of man. This is Romans 11, 5 and 6. 
Romans 11, 5 and 6. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, you couldn't have excluded works more beautifully than Paul did right there. The election is of grace. And if it's of grace, it is not of works. If it was of works, it wouldn't be grace. But since it's grace, it's not works. Now, just let me point one thing right here, and then we'll pass right on to an individual that wants to argue against the doctrine of election. Some people will put it this way. That the way a person becomes a child of God is like this. The gospel preacher goes and preaches the gospel to the poor, lost, and ruined sinner. The poor, lost, and ruined sinner hears the message and believes and accepts Jesus as his personal Savior from sin. And then upon hearing and believing, he is then born again into the family of God, and now he's one of God's elect. Problem. Problem with that. According to that particular arrangement, the individual is responding to a man preaching to him. And if there's one thing the Bible makes crystal clear about the preaching of the gospel, and that is that it's work. And brother, nobody knows that fact better than I know it. It's work, work, work. I'm tired now. It's work. Paul speaks of the work of the ministry. I could give you verse after verse where gospel preaching is spoken of as a labor or as a work. Now, Paul says here in speaking of the election, it's not of works. In other words, preachers and all their energetic preaching and all of their running, and I do plenty of that, have nothing to do whatever with making people elect. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. And in our particular day, we could add, not of him that flieth either. I'm not running to Edmonton, I'm flying. But that isn't going to make anybody there one of God's elect. But I tell you what it might do, it might help us to identify who is. Now Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, 4, and says, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. All right, now Paul knows there's an election. And he knows these people he's writing to are included in it. You see, we talk about God electing some and overlooking others. And the question, of course, arises in the mind. But what if I'm not one of the elect? How can I know whether I'm elect or not? That's a very good question. And Paul, in this passage that speaks definitively and plainly, tells you how you know whether you're elect or not. He's going to tell you how he knew these Thessalonians were elect. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For, Paul, you know these people are elect. How do you know that? What's your key? Have you seen the book of life? No. Were you present before the foundation of the world when God elected the Thessalonians? No. Well, did the Lord come to you and say, these are my elect? No. Well, Paul, how did you know these people were elect of God? How, Paul? All right, Paul says, I'll take up the challenge. I'll tell you how I know. For, I know this. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of man we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Paul knew these people were elect of God because of the way they had responded to the gospel. The effect the gospel had on them is what identified them as God's elect. Now that shows you right there what the purpose for the gospel is. It isn't to make people elect. Paul didn't say that they were made elect 
by the way they received the gospel. Oh no, Paul said the way they received the gospel was the way you know they're the elect. You see the point? There's a difference. The gospel doesn't make them the elect. The gospel is the means whereby you know they are elect. See, they're already elect. The gospel identifies them, makes that fact known. You identify God's elect by the way men respond to the gospel. You find a man that responds properly to the gospel, you've located one of the elect. And you can say to him, I know your election of God for the gospel came not unto you in word only. You see, that's the only way it comes to a lot of people. It's just so many words that they hear and it's no different to them than a, than a speech by President Reagan or a lecture in a, in a public school classroom. For them, it's just something they have to sit and listen to. But for others, it's different. It comes not in word only, but it comes in power. The word power, when referring to equality or property means the ability to do or to affect something or anything, to act upon a person or thing. In other words, when the gospel was preached to these people, it had an effect on them. It acted on them. It didn't just leave them alone. It reached out and it grabbed them. Kind of like we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 37, when Peter had preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, it said then they were pricked in their hearts. You see, it came in power. It had an effect. It, it pricked them. It touched them. It moved them. It came in power. Now, Paul tells us who the gospel is the power of God too. All right? And this is how come you know they're the elect of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and also I'll add in passing before reading this passage while you turn to it, this passage will tell you what that power is that the gospel came in. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 21, for we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called. Now notice the people are already called, and if they are called, this is what the gospel message of Christ crucified is to them. Unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. If a man is not called and hears the gospel, and hears somebody stand up there and talk about this little Jew hanging on a wooden tree, despised by his own nation, rejected by the people that he'd come to minister to, dying as a criminal between criminals, unloved by Jew and Gentile alike, spat upon, uh, bruised, mangled, scourged, standing up there just uh, uh, for, just uh, with his visage so marred that he doesn't even look like a man. And uh, th this... Here's somebody get up and preach about this. Preach about this, this fellow up here on this cross. And say, now this is the Son of God. This is the Savior of sinners. If this man doesn't save you, you'll never get saved. What? What? You mean that man up there that's hanging there, dying as a criminal, despised by Jew and Gentile? I mean, this, I, this man that, that Rome and her Pax Romana crucified? R Rome? I mean, why, the world never saw a civilization like Rome. I, I mean, uh, 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 history had reached its apex of intellectual and technological development in Rome at that time. I mean, it was the fruition of the achievements of mankind. And they condemned him to die like that for a bunch of Jews that thought he was an imposter. I mean, after all, his own people didn't even believe he was the Son of God. And you mean you're telling me that that man is the King of Kings and Lord of Lord of Lords, the Judge of this earth? And if I don't believe him, that God's going to judge me? You're telling me that 
is the power of God unto salvation. Precisely, I'm telling you that. But he rose from the dead three days later. But I've got no... How do I... Yeah, but you, you tell me that, but, but prove it. Well, a bunch of people said they saw it. Well, let me see it. Well, I can't. But it's true. And you're commanded to believe it. Now, for a man that's not called of God, that's not born again, that has nothing within him to relate to that, that's silly. But when a man's been called of God, and he hears that. To him, it is the revelation of the power of God. That's the power of God hanging on that cross. Unto them which are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To whom is the gospel the power of God? Romans 1.16 will answer. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Now... The gospel is good news. Well, what is the good news? He's telling you what it is. The good news is the power of God. Well, what's the power of God? It isn't the news. It's what the news is telling you about. It's Christ crucified, the power of God. As Paul said in black and white print in Romans in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, if you know how to read. Christ is the power of God that is proclaimed in the gospel. But who is the man that sees that? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. You see, the gospel comes in power to a man if God gives that man the ability to believe the message when it's preached. That's what Paul said to these Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Here's the people that the gospel had an effect on that it came in power to. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of man. See, it didn't just come to you in word only. But as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually, that is, it had a power on you, effectually worketh in you that believe. God gives the sinner the ability to believe the message that is proclaimed. And that individual is the one that the gospel comes to in power. And what is that power? It's Christ crucified, the power of God to save the sinner. But it didn't come just in power, but it came in the Holy Ghost. And that ties right in, really, with the point that it comes in power. You know, a man cannot preach the gospel without the Spirit of God. I could no more preach the gospel of myself than I could fly. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, speaking of the gospel, he said, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. When I preach the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit speaks through me. I preach it with the Spirit of God. But not only must the Holy Spirit enable me to preach it, but the Holy Spirit must enable you to believe it. You see, the Holy Spirit's got to be involved in the action of preaching the gospel, blessing me to preach it, blessing you to hear it. 
This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.19 and said, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us were to believe, believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now what was the power that God exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead? 1 Peter 3.18 says, Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter said, Paul says here in Ephesians, we believe according to that power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead raised you from the dead. And it's according to that that you're able to believe. A dead man cannot believe the gospel testimony, but a man who is saved, called, quickened, can believe. You see the point? That's why, brethren, it is so important that, when we, that we have to pray to God for effective evangelism. Because if God does not work to open the heart of the sinner to receive the message and work on me to preach it, there can be no evangelism. It comes in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost enabling the person to understand and the Holy Ghost enabling me to communicate and thus the individual believes the gospel message. And when he believes it, well, that indicates he's one of God's elect. Because listen, what is the faith in the gospel but the faith of God's elect? Who is it that's able to believe? It's the elect of God. Listen to it now. In, in Acts chapter 13, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Who believed? The one God appointed to eternal life. That's how you know the elect, see? It's the elect that can and do believe. It came not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in how important this is, and this is that principle we've mentioned before that we want to zero in right here, in much assurance. When you present the gospel, again, I have said it once, I must say it again. When you present the gospel to people, present it as something you know, and it's the truth, and it's not just your opinion or your persuasion. In other words, preach it like I've been telling it to you this morning. Now, when I got up here this morning and preached election, I didn't get up here and say, well, now, this is the way our church believes. But after all, nobody knows for sure, but uh, this seems to be the most logical and the most reasonable, and that's why we believe it. But after all, we're all working for the same place. You know, you've heard that. Don't present it like that. Oh, yes, it is indeed true. We are all working for the same place. And as the minister who baptized Conrad said, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would have all made it too. I like that. That says it real well. You don't preach it as some idea or opinion or point of theology that your denomination believes. You preach it as the truth there is no other. Knowing, knowing, knowing the election of God. See? It came in much assurance. There is to be no subjectivism to this message. Subjectivism is the idea that religion's all the way you see it. Just the way you see it. Oh no. Religion is the way God has revealed it in Jesus Christ. And is no other way. There must be no relativism. Relativism states it doesn't matter how you see it. We're all entitled to believe it as we wish. Oh no. It does matter how you see it. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It does make a difference how you see it, friends. It's all a difference in between whether you have evidence that you're a child of God or not. That's how much difference it makes. And it must not be preached with a flavor of agnosticism, which is basically this. No one has the answer anyway. No one really knows for sure anyway. 
You'd be surprised how many professing Christian people are agnostics. Their attitude is, nobody really can be dogged. How many people are there that are professing Christians that believe that the one and greatest sin an individual can commit is to be dogmatic? Our own president in a news conference said that when he was raised up, the only thing he was taught to be prejudiced against was a bigot. In other words, don't be prejudiced against anything except the person that's prejudiced. The great sin of our culture that wants to reduce everybody down to being the same thing is being dogmatic. In other words, agnosticism, nobody knows for sure, has been exalted as the height and apex of intellectual attainment. In other words, the most intellectual, the most brilliant, the most knowledgeable is the man that doesn't think you can really know for sure after all. Oh, what stupidity. It's a fact, it's a fact people. The apex of intellectual development is finally arriving at that great glorious truth nobody knows for sure anyway. It's all in how you see it. It's whatever we think is best for the present. There is nothing absolute, nothing definite. Nothing sure. No wonder the Bible says God has made the wisdom of this world foolishness. How ridiculous. How ridiculous to spend money and years and time and energy to discover. Nobody knows for sure anyway. Why? How ridiculous. But that is not the way it is. We know and are persuaded of that which we speak. And that must be throughout our presentation. Let me give you a few verses to establish this, and we're hastening now to a close. Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. I love that. Oh, so dogmatic, so narrow-minded, so unwilling to admit the possibility that it could be any other way. Acts 17.31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And then this passage. And you know, this one has really jumped out at me as so meaningful in effective evangelism. And it is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. You talk about presenting it with much assurance. Listen to this. You talk about being dogmatic. Listen to this. Moreover, or verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. In other words, Christianity is not something that a group of people just sat out and made up. First of all, Christianity is based on a group of documents that are in tremendous, unbelievable... Well, let me don't, I'll put it that way. You better believe it. Tremendous... Harmony and agreement. A group of writers of different times, different ages, spanning a space of some 1,500 to 2,000 years, who didn't know one another, writing separate and apart from each other, and all of their different writings come together and form a book that everybody speaks of in the singular, the Bible. And these fellows all agree. 
Here is Isaiah, hundreds of years, describing in detail the death of that Jew. David describing in detail the death of that Jew. Now, you might want to say, well, that Jew was an imposter. He just read all those prophecies and just mimicked them. Well, you, you, you might could uh, say that for the things he did. But what about the things his enemies did to him? They certainly weren't trying to fulfill prophecy. They certainly had no thought in mind of establishing his claims as the Christ. That was the furthest thing in their mind, from their mind. And yet they fulfilled the scriptures that were written of him when they didn't even know it. Marvelous harmony. Nobody's ever proved that Jesus Christ ever told a lie. And nobody can get... It'd take a fool to deny he was here. I mean, every time you date your checkbook, you acknowledge he was here. I mean, the whole of history split right in two, and he split it. He is the personality that stands at the division of time. You date to him, and you date from him. He's in the middle, brother. Everything centers around him. Now, only a fool would deny he was here. Even the vilest will admit he was here, though they will try to discredit his claims. But whoever proved he told a lie? Whoever proved it? Who can prove that his disciples ever told a lie? Well, they said he rose from the dead. Yeah. But did you realize that body disappeared after they had taken every kind of precaution to keep it from happening? I mean, Roman guard guarding the tomb where he slept with a stone over the door that it took manpower to move that thing so heavy. And I mean more than one man. Three days later, he's not there. Well, the story is his disciples stole him away. Well, then, if the disciples were just preaching a hoax, why were they so willing to suffer and die and endure every kind of privation? Listen, hypocrites don't make good martyrs. <laughs> I mean, hypocrites think too much of their own hide. How do you think they're hypocrites? 